0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Plus Four podcast exploring the big wide world of Hickory Golf. I'm your host, Rob Berman. Episodes of this podcast reflect the personalities, the passion, and the pursuit of the game as it was played in the pre-1935 era across the world. Please subscribe and hit the like button to help us build our network of golfing fans coordinated in the United States through the Society of Hickory Golfers. And visit us online at plus4.org. Lauren, thank you for speaking with me today. Angela Howe mentioned you to me when I was at the World Golf Museum last October. Can you tell us about the research you're doing and your affiliation at the museum?
1: Yeah, of course. Thank you for having me here to talk today. Um, Yeah, so I am in the final year of my PhD. um, I'm researching women's club golf in Scotland um, during the period 1945 to 1995. Um, Specifically, um, so I've undertaken oral history research and specifically looking at women's personal experiences of playing golf from a gender, class and stage of life cycle perspective during this period. My PhD is a collaborative doctorate partnership PhD, which means that I'm enrolled at Glasgow Caledonian University. Um, and working in collaboration with the RNA World Golf Museum in St Andrews, so it's a really unique, you know, um, sort of experience whereby you get the academic. Obviously, you're doing academic research, but you get that practical museum experience as well, which is really great.
0: Mm-hmm. And uh, how did you get connected to the museum? Was that through your faculty advisors?
1: Yeah, so it's so it's already set up. So I didn't propose the research topic myself, so it was already proposed by um Professor Fiona Skillen from the from Glasgow Caledonian University, um, Dr. Fiona Reed and um Hannah Fleming, uh, that are uh, the Learning and Access Curator at the RNA World Golf Museum. Uh-huh. So together they Put forward this proposal, um, and we were fortunate to get funding through the AHRC, uh, the Arts and Humanities Research Council, and through the Sporting Heritage Consortium. Mm -hmm. Um, So, got quite a lot of different sort of organizations that I'm working with as well, which is great.
0: Is it the case that the period after the war is less known to the LGU, or is it just an area of the archives that they needed more research time?
1: sort of secondary literature, sort of the historiography on women's golf has predominantly focused on the earlier period, sort of the earlier development. And I think this is because the archives, you know, are so strong. Um, So you've got the Ladies Golf Union LGU um, archive, you know, which the LGU were incredible organizers, you know, from, so they established themselves in 1893 um, and within, couple of months they had the first championship mm-hmm. which is continuing to run today and you know they established the, the handicapping system the first handicapping system in the world before men did, mm-hmm. 30 years before men did, which is just remarkable so there is a there's an absence of secondary literature certainly on the post-war period particularly um in scotland as well um so there's different sort of I think reasons for this, obviously, when you go into the the post-war period, sort of later on, from about the eight, sort of the mid 70s, 80s, you've got professionalism really coming in to play, mm-hmm. and obviously mm-hmm. there was a large focus on of literature on that as well, looking at sort of elite uh, level golfers, looking at professional golfers um, from an international perspective as well. Whereas my research specifically is interested in Scotland and club golf, amateur Mm -hmm. golf and women's experiences, personal experiences, you know, and what motivated them to start playing golf? What challenges have they faced? You know, did they play golf at school? Did they play golf on holiday You know, what makes a woman's experience of playing golf at club level different from a man's experience and their opinion and things like that. So that's the sort of things that I touch on Um, and looking at stage of life cycle, obviously looking at different their participation at different stages of their life. So, yeah, there was definitely a gap in the literature there. um, And that's, you know, where this sort of research proposal came from.
0: Mm -hmm. for the sake of your research is the idea of being a woman defined is it separate from being a girl
1: oh that's interesting interesting question um yeah well i suppose because i look at yeah i do look at women's participation throughout their life cycle so if Mm -hmm. um, the majority of the interviewees uh, the women that i have interviewed certainly um have played golf since childhood there were women that came into the game later on in life as well but the majority have played golf from childhood were influenced by you know parents predominantly male figures but sometimes mothers and grandmothers as well um, But predominantly fathers grandfathers so yes I look I do look at that you know that that the different challenges as well, you know, throughout the different stages of a woman's life cycle as well. So I suppose I do, yeah, do make the... the
0: it's the whole yeah. cycle. Yeah. Yeah, 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 I get you. Now, aren't you also focusing largely on the west coast of Scotland in terms of the oral histories?
1: Yeah, so, well, I look sort of at a broad geographical sort of area, so the, the majority of current research has focused on the sort of central belt and east coast of Scotland. So St Andrews, Edinburgh, those sort of areas where there is obviously, uh, there's been a large focus on on, on golf, a strong history of, of the sport there. Um, so my research looks, I interviewed women from different areas, so I've interviewed some women from the borders in Scotland, from the Mm -hmm. Highlands and Islands, and from the West Coast as well, as well as some from the East and the Central Belt, but I really did try to make sure that I included the West Coast, Highlands and Islands and Borders, because these are areas that haven't been explored as much.
0: I see, and are you going to them, or are you doing this online, or how do you do it?
1: So I did, I did it on, um, predominantly online so i started my phd in january 2020 so by march obviously we were all in lockdown so um yeah so that was a challenge <laughs> um so 20 so i um undertook 25 oral history interviews and 21 of them were online mm-hmm. and then I did four right at the end in person which was great as well to be able to 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 have that sort of difference difference in experience as well but yeah so
0: and where will those oral histories live in perpetuity where do they where do they stay
1: um yeah so they'll be archived um at the RNA World mm-hmm. Golf Museum and um yeah, so it's hope that you know they'll be able to be used for future research maybe for exhibitions and for different Mm -hmm. for research papers and and different things so yeah
0: that must be an honor for those ladies to be uh identified and chosen for this project
1: yeah, well, I, I mean, I'm just really grateful that they came forward. They've they've shared some just some really amazing stories. And um, I absolutely loved undertaking the oral histories, like the best part, one of my favorite parts of, of my research, speaking to these women. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just really appreciate I'm so grateful to them for their time and, you know, the stories that they shared with me, you know, because it is it's the really is the sort of the basis of my my thesis you know is all their their stories that I've been able to analyze and 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 bring together so yeah I'm yeah I'm really grateful to them.
0: That's pretty neat how about is your mother still living and what does she think about this project?
1: Yeah yes yeah, she is and yeah she's she's my mum's not a golfer. I'm not a golfer. I'm not from a golfing family. Um, my grandfather or my dad's my dad's dad, he loved golf, he was golf mad. Um it was never something that he introduced to me. I mean, he passed away when I was 10, so I don't know if it was an age thing or but certainly my brother, who's seven years older than me, he tried to get Jamie my brother involved in golf um but it was never never considered for me you yeah. know um and I, I so it just was never It never came into my world golf um until now right. um so but my mum just yeah she thinks it's great she's she just loves you know that um obviously it's about women and yeah, yeah. she's she finds me it too. interesting yeah. learning about it as well
0: you know, I, I, when I interviewed Angela, I mentioned to her, of all the things I saw in the museum, the portion of the galleries devoted to the LGU was the most compelling to me. It was a story I wasn't overly familiar with, and I thought the presentation was the most fascinating. Let's go back to 1893 for a minute. You know this quote, obviously, but for the sake of the listeners, I'm just going to read a quote from Horace Hutchison's. He famously wrote, quote, constitutionally and physically, women are unfitted for golf. They will never last through two rounds of a long course in a day. Temperamentally, the strain will be too great for them. The first ladies championship will be the last unless I and others are greatly mistaken. The LGU seems scarcely worthwhile, end quote. Now, I understand from the reading that I've done that he later retracted that and apologized for writing that. And he also became a vice president of the LGU. Is that true?
1: Yeah, yeah, he did. He, he became a, a, yeah, really did support women's golf in the LGU in the end. I think his first statement there is just really a reflection of society and mm-hmm. um, sort of patriarchal society at that time. You know, women, you know, were regarded as to being in the, to stay in the private sphere, you know, in the home And, you know, it was the men that were out working and in the public, the public sphere. And Mm -hmm. at this time, women did really need men and the support of men to be taken seriously, to be seen as, you know, to be respectable and all the rest of it. So, you know, in in keeping with um, the conventions of the day. So at the time, obviously, that the LGU was established, they did need male support. And they, you know, they had that, they had male vice presidents. But as a, I think it's important to sort of to note that they did support, gentlemen did support women, you know, even with the, the first ladies golf club in the world, the St Andrews Ladies Golf Club, which was established in 1867. It was prominent sort of influential gentlemen, local to St Andrews, that supported their daughters and their wives and setting up this club and they did have some they did have their own sort of autonomy and and things like that as well but you know they they did they had to have that sort of support there and that watchful eye almost Mm -hmm. as to what was going on but what's interesting with the LGU is that when Azette Pearson the founder of the LGU When she married um, her husband, Tommy Miller, who was one of the vice presidents, she um, came to the board at one of the meetings and said that she was thinking about resigning because there was a lot of time spent, obviously, for her. She had to be in London a lot with her duties as honorary secretary, she was at the time of the, the LGU. And they um, basically refused her resignation and said that they would reduce, they would do everything in their power to reduce the amount of time that she was required in London and, you know, would support her basically because they thought so highly of her, you know, and what she was doing. So I think that says a lot, especially at that time as well. So
0: Now you, the LGU started in 1893 and you mentioned the first championship was just a few months later. Is that today the, AIG championship is it one continuous thread all the way to today
1: no well it's not the AIG the AIG is the women's open but the oh. the, the British ladies amateur is still continuing today it's the women's amateur now
0: right and um,
1: so the competition is still in existence today yeah
0: I see excellent now you also mentioned is that Pearson uh, she was a member at Wimbledon and was one of the founders of the LGU And the primary guiding hand. She was at the reins for, I think, more than two decades, wasn't she?
1: Yes. Yes, that's right.
0: Yes. Uh, Are there any good biographies of her? I wasn't able to find any. Are there any decent biographies that you know of?
1: Not that I'm aware of, no. I mean, she's very well re- referenced in, in secondary literature. Um, and I've got quite a lot of books that I can recommend um, that do have her mentioned. But um, no, no, no biographies of her that I'm aware
0: of. I like also, I think she married rather late and she seemed to have a very independent uh, streak to her, which I want to know more about.
1: Yeah yeah she was she was an interesting character and there's two sides of her portrayed you know she was she's been called the tsar of russia and um, because of her sort of autocratic and ways i don't really read her that way i think this that she was just a very passionate woman she was extremely passionate about women's golf she was very driven And you know she put a lot of time and and you know into she put her life into it basically Mm -hmm, into mm -hmm. the 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 LGU, um. But yeah, I think she she was a force to be to be reckoned with for sure. Yeah, wouldn't want to get on the wrong side of her.
0: Somewhere I saw a photograph of her at one of the championships where she was uh, in a candid moment, and most of the portraits of her are fairly stern looking, but this other photograph, which was a candid captured her just relaxed and with all of the other ladies and I'd love to know more about her and I'm sure at some point that'll be a book that'll get published.
1: Yeah yeah she's a fast she has a fascinating character and I've seen photographs of her as well in the collection where you see her smiling and relaxed and it's really (laughs) nice to see that to see that side of her because I think that's the real her you know. Exactly.
0: Just quickly also if I'm correct many uh, sister organizations of the LGU sprang up all over the world. And it feels to me like somehow in Scotland, they were able to keep all of these associations tied together and they didn't split apart. Is that true? That's a, that's miraculous if that's the case.
1: Yeah. So I'm not sure about the across the world, but I know that. So for Scotland, you've got the Scottish ladies golfing association, which was formed in 1904, mm-hmm. um, to really give Scottish women their own sort of representation. The women became automatically members of the LGU as well, but it gave them their own sort of autonomy, I suppose, um, and representation. And that the it's only recently in recent years that the Scottish Ladies Golfing Association has merged with Scottish Golf. Yes. Um, So that's um, all one sort of organization now.
0: Let's go back to the earliest championship. This woman, Lady Margaret Scott, ends Mm -hmm. up the victor. And I I just have a few notes about her. It's incredible. So she meets Azette in uh, the first finals of the first championship in 1893. Wins that match, seven and five. They meet again the next year. And in the, in the finals, again, there were 64 players in that second championship, which is a fairly large field, especially when you compare to the early men's open championships. Those were less than 20 players. So the second ladies amateur championship, I guess you could, would say 64 players, lady Margaret Scott prevails again, the second year they meet again in the third year, which is up in Ireland at Royal Portrush, not in the final round. Lady Margaret Scott prevails again against Azette Pearson and ultimately wins that championship the first three in a row. And then she retires at the age of 21 as an undefeated golfer. How much in the archives have you been able to find about Lady Margaret Scott?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's not, she's not someone that I've looked into in great detail just because she comes earlier than the yes. period that I'm looking at, but there are photographs and amazing photographs of her in the collection. And she, yeah, she, what, um, you know, she was an amazing golfer. Um, like you have just said, she, so yeah, she did. She won the first three consecutive championships, which has only since been done by a couple of of, mm. of women, Cecil Leach being, being one of them. And, she yes she retired because she got married
0: hmm. she got
1: married at 21 and she stopped playing golf which i think was you know again uh one of the conventions of the time right and um, and it's a shame that that happened um because i'm sure she would have went on to win many more championships um, but she was really sort of like an iconic golfer because for that time as well she looked, if you see photographs of her, I mean she was a beautiful woman, very you know, just um, very feminine Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. really resembled you know, a Victorian um, woman I suppose Um, and she was able to remain feminine and ladylike which was obviously very important to sort of gender ideals in this period so she really, you know, and she was an amazing golfer, despite, you know, um, I mean, the clothing that these ladies wore, yeah. you know, corsets, long skirts, tight blouses, you know, gloves, hats, everything. And to be able to play the way that they did is just remarkable, really. Yeah.
0: And of course, just as a reminder to the listeners, this is all in the gutty era, at least the first few championships. The LGU worked in part to conserve the amateur aspect of weekly women's club golf and family golf. What are you learning about the lifestyles of women in the 40s, 50s and 60s that might surprise us today?
1: So I've interviewed a couple of women that actually started playing in the 1940s. Women being encouraged by fathers and grandfathers from a young age, you know, as young as four. And, you know, in different regions, two of the women that I'm interviewed had played from the 1940s and um, had children and married so they stopped playing golf for quite a long for a good few years while mm-hmm. their children were young and mm-hmm. um, which is was quite common I think at that time again and the family connection I think is really something that's significant you know there was women that I a few women that I interviewed and they said you know it wasn't as much what inspired me to play golf it was i didn't really have a choice my dad and oh. my mom you know my father and my mother played uh-huh. golf and oh we had to play golf as a result of that but i think you know the fact that they are still playing <laughs> now and they're passing it on to their children you know that's really special this is a sport that you know once you start you obviously can't stop playing so it's yeah the the family connection is something I would say that really comes across
0: Mm -hmm. in the oral histories are you collecting some photographs as well of the people you're interviewing so that 200 years from now people will be able to put a face to the name
1: No, I haven't done that. And the reason why is because I've anonymized my participants and that's something that was quite interesting. So just for ethical reasons, just to give the women as well a chance to be as open as possible um, about their experiences, they are anonymized in the research. So I I haven't done that. But what I did do was during interviews, there were women that brought some nice photographs along or objects, maybe showed me trophies or a photograph of them winning a championship or, Mm -hmm. you know. So it's just, amazing. yeah, that was great to have that as well. And, uh, yeah.
0: So if you would, take us into the archives with you. So how much time do you spend in the archives at the LGU?
1: I spent a day a week roughly for approximately the first year of the PhD I would go in a day a week now obviously again I started in Covid so there was a bit of an interruption in that at times and so it was when it was safe to do so I was in the archive yeah it was great (laughs) it's just uh it was a great day to be in the archive and just be surrounded by you know just all these amazing you know collections really so in the LGU archive you've got photographs so a large very heavy photograph albums dating from the the first championship in mm-hmm. 1893 and basically all the way through to the present day
0: so and just to pause there the photographs mostly are organized in albums already
1: yeah they are okay, yeah well, well that's that's helpful Yeah, it's great, and with um, a lot of inscriptions as well, which is really helpful, so when they've put these albums together, we don't know, you know, when the pen, like the pen, a lot of the pen on some of them is, like, red pen, so it's obviously Mm -hmm. come later, Um, but um, there is a lot of, you know, names and inscriptions, championships, details, you know, of where things are, which is really helpful as well, really important.
0: And then uh, is there much correspondence in the archives as well?
1: Not as much correspondence, but there's scrapbooks Mm -hmm. um, that um, women have compiled, um, some really early as well, um, photographs and anecdotes and bits from newspapers, Mm -hmm. newspaper clippings. There's handbooks, there's subscription, sort of um, LGU subscription books, there's minute books. um, Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of Archival material sort of relating to the organisation, which is good from a sort of institutional sort of standpoint. I used mainly, so I dipped into a lot of the periodicals, so Fairway mm-hmm. and Hazard, women's periodicals, also Golf Illustrated, which isn't part of the LGU, but it's in the archive as well. And looked at photograph albums as well were really important. And I did look at minute books and things as well. But obviously, because I'm interested in sort of like the women's sort of personal experiences, that wasn't as much in the sort of like subscriptions and the right. you know the minute books, that sort of organizational stuff. But I mean, it, yeah, it's just amazing that they have recorded all that, you know, from from such an early period. They The LGU knew what they were doing was important. And they've taken a record of it. And um, mm-hmm. yeah, it's just, it's great.
0: It's pretty incredible to try to put ourselves back in that mindset when something like this didn't even exist. You know, it's, it's just so interesting to, to me and so many listeners to put ourselves back in that 19th century where they were pioneers and creating something that, as I said, I have a feeling uh, they managed to keep it all together globally somehow, although I don't know that for sure, but I think the LGUs in Asia and Africa and other places are affiliated with the the actual LGU. And I just find that unbelievably impressive. Mm. Well, let's talk just for a minute about dress, and then we'll get back into the modern era. But I know the museum in St. Andrews has some examples of what women wore, and I've seen some of the early photographs, and you've touched on it. I was reading last night that They had to develop special elastic bands to hold their skirts in place in case it was windy. And there was just all these norms and standards that are so different today. Yeah. Um, uh, By the 40s, I imagine the ladies were wearing skirts and shorts. Is that true?
1: Skirts certainly, shorts weren't something. You no, know, they they were later. Okay. Um, yeah, I think they were sort of pioneered in America okay. and then brought over here. Uh-huh. Um. Yeah, we but I mean, it was. But it was the first trousers worn were. Um, Gloria monoprio wore a pair of trousers to the nineteen thirty three English Coals Championship, um, and it caused absolute <laughs> scandal. It yeah. was just. I mean, the LGU had to make a public apology. It was really frowned upon. It was the first time that a woman had ever worn a pair of trousers um, at a championship. And we've got the museum has got the trousers, oh, got really? the outfit that she was wearing. So the iconic. So she had these very tight navy trousers uh-huh. and a tight fitting navy polo jumper and a sort of bandol like um head scarf Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. hat, and yeah it was just very she was very striking she was a a character and she just she only played I think with one club and she was very sort of she would just play her shot and then she would be away um
0: (laughs) so uh
1: But yeah, um, so yeah, that's in the collection, um, and that's that's great. And then there's other things as well. So you've got Mabel Stringer's outfit as well that she wore. So it was 1894, that's dated. And that contrasts with this later period. So she was wearing a sort of um, tailored red golfing jacket, which was Mm -hmm. more common down in England, as a sort of warning to pedestrians crossing the links. Right, and um, right. that's what they were traditionally worn for. Um, and she was she had a long, um, skirt with leather trimmed round the bottom, and again, that was one of these sort of hacks, if you like, to prevent the the skirt from getting all wet and muddy mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and and you know in bad weather. So they would so leather to the bottom of the skirts and the right. elastic you were you'd mentioned is a miss higgins hoop and right. um, and that was yeah pioneered by uh an american golfer actually mm. um who wore that and it's they basically yeah they would put it around the bottom of their legs to stop their their dresses their skirts blowing up in the in the wind right. so but, and they had to do this because the clothes that they wore in the earlier period were so restricted. As, as I said earlier on, you know, like corsets and long skirts and tight fit blouses and hats and everything had to be in place. Um, so, yeah, they really did do what they could to make sure that they they played golf, basically, and, and the, the, the conventions that were appropriate. Uh, mm-hmm. for the day
0: you mentioned mabel stringer and uh she was founder of the veteran ladies golf association and the first female golf journalist do you know much more about her
1: i don't know a great deal about her i just know i know that um yeah she was a very she was a close friend of is pearson's and mm-hmm. um, she was very um involved in the lgu she was also involved with the younger golfer so she was fondly known as Auntie Mabel which I think is really nice and um, so she set up the first I think girls championship as well mm-hmm. um, as well so yeah she was very very much involved in the LGU but because that sort of focus on the earlier period I don't know much more about her than that.
0: Mm-hmm. In terms of your interviews with ladies from the 40s how far up do you go Do you go to the 60s? Your, yeah, your era. so I
1: look I look 1945 to 1995. Oh, so okay. I've interviewed women, yeah, right through that period. So some women that started playing in the 80s as well, right. um, late 80s.
0: Uh, and do you, through the museum affiliation, have you had a chance to meet some of the top female golfers today? I know they um, occasionally come through.
1: Yeah, I mean, I haven't, I haven't yet, but um, I've just, I've been able to meet just some amazing amateur golfers and Mm -hmm. um, just um, really enjoyed, you know, interviewing these women and and hearing about their stories. So, yeah.
0: Is there any commonality that you're deriving from your talks in terms of the, either the challenges or the hurdles or the self-motivation and the self-confidence that this brought?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think one thing that just really comes through is just, women their passion for the game you know the enjoyment they get from it you know their their competitive spirit as well you know Mm -hmm. although a lot of although they might say you know that that's one of the differences and they might say you know women are less competitive but I'm not sure about that when I hear about all the competitions they play in and how you know when I ask them what what they enjoy most about golf, and they'll say, "Oh, the competition—that comp- mm-hmm. you know, the competitive elements. So, yeah, just that the enjoyment, the passion for the game—that's the main, the main, the main sort of thing. And then just sort of like I said earlier, the um, sort of there's commonalities and roots into golf. You know, um, family sort of influence being a big, a big common theme, um, and that's something that I. Explore a lot in my research. Mm-hmm. Um, the sort of support, obviously financial, but more than that, you know, um, just this sort of like encouragement to play the game. You know, from quite a young age. I mean, mm-hmm. there's. I think the the youngest is about about four there's a few it was a couple of women actually that started playing at four years old Mm -hmm. um which is really young (laughs)
0: does Um, the does the um element of equipment come up commonly in your discussions also or is that was that fairly standardized by the 1940s
1: yeah um I, I mean I don't go into it too much but I do discuss so one thing that I thought was really nice is that you know, um, women saying you know about handed sort of like clubs were cut down clubs, mm-hmm. um, that were passed down. So there would be their dad's clubs that they would cut down, and then when they grew out of them, they got other hand-me-down sort of clubs that they would use, and then those clubs would go on to somebody else. Sure, um, and they would share. Sometimes you know, women sharing clubs with their brothers or sis- and sisters. And I had a, one of my interviewees. Um, who her cut, clubs were were cut down clubs, and her golf bag was made by her mother out of a leg <laughs> of her father's jeans, and I just thought that was brilliant.
0: Yeah.
1: Um. So yeah, that's kind of where my sort of focus on equipment goes is this sort of you know women just you know that playing with what they had really. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. yeah. And I love it. The
0: most of it. Are the LGU archives digitized much or is that still work that should be done in the future?
1: Yeah, so at the moment they're they're not really well they are they're um they are digitized and um, they're not publicly available mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but they are they're digitized but it's an ongoing process so there's still a lot more uh, digitization to be done.
0: And, and Lauren, what happens with your work? Does it end up in a book, do you think?
1: I would like to, I would like to, um, yeah, eventually publish my my thesis into a book. I would love to do that, but that'll be some way down the line. Um, at the moment, I am writing up, so I'm finishing up my PhD and writing that up. Mm-hmm. What comes next, I'm not, I'm still not sure, but um I've just, I've loved, I've absolutely loved doing the PhD. I've loved doing this research.
0: Yeah. And now I think you studied French and some other things before your graduate work. Would you hope to stay in the museum world? Is that something you would be interested in doing?
1: Yeah, definitely. So I am, yeah, I did my undergrad in history and French. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I did um, my masters in museum and gallery studies, and because I volunteered in a museum for a few years, and I absolutely loved. That's what I wanted to do: was work in a museum. Mm-hmm. And I worked in a museum for a year um, as a curatorial trainee, um, and loved that. And then came into this PhD because I saw it, and I just saw the connection. You know, the history, the social history, which I love, women's history, and then the museum. Um, I didn't know anything about golf. I wasn't a golfer, mm-hmm. um, but this is my research. Really, is it's a history of women. You know, it's their stories. Golf, obviously, is the main, the main part of it. But it's about them and their lives and how their golf participation is. You know. Um, Changed over the span of their life cycle and things so um but yeah I would like I would I would like to still would like to work in a museum yeah (laughs) um or continue into academia um or a research position I'm kind of just at the moment focusing on getting my PhD finished Um, but yeah excited to see to see
0: what comes after and so when you do an oral history what formats do those get saved in
1: yeah, so they're saved um, as WAV files to how I did mine, and they will be saved in the um, – so they'll be archived at the museum mm-hmm. digitally.
0: But that's an um, audio file, but I imagine you type them up as well, so they probably yeah. exist. So I, uh,
1: yeah, so that's the, the audio file, um, and then I um, transcribe them, so I've transcribed mm-hmm. them all in full as well. Yeah, and then obviously they'll be – in the thesis as well, they'll be – quoted Mm -hmm. anonymously
0: have you come across any stories of women working as caddies was that any thread that led any of the women you talked to into the game
1: no um interestingly um not in the women that i've spoken to Mm -hmm. but i did come across a really great photo in the collection of the 1922 english course championship at Hunsington, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, it's of girl, four girl caddies. Mm-hmm. And I've shared it on Twitter and things because I just think it's the best image. It's like my favorite <laughs> one that I've come across. Um, but yeah, that's the only sort of reference I've come across really mm-hmm. to women to women caddies.
0: I believe there was a women's golf museum for a time and it seems to have been in London and it's affiliated with the Ladies Golf Club there. Am I right that their materials are now combined at the University of St. Andrew's Special Collection? And have you had a chance to look at that material?
1: Yes, so that's correct. So the um, Women Golfers Museum... Established in 1938 and um, originally um housed in London. Mm-hmm. Um, it was established um by a group of golfers at the Veteran Ladies Golf Association. Um and I've got a wee quote here for collecting and exhibiting objects relating to the origin and growth of women's golf. Um, so that was sort of the the found-in sort of reason for the collection. And yes, so now the archival material is in special collections and the physical objects are in the museum. So sort of um, Gloria Minoprio's outfit and Mabel Stringer's outfit that I mentioned, they are part of the Women Golfers' collection.
0: So the archives
1: are at the University of St Andrews and right. then the um, objects are at the RNA World well, Golf Museum. Uh-huh. Yeah. There's a website uh-huh. where you can go on and browse the collection and they're just that's just not a physical sort of museum anymore.
0: And uh, is there any item in the RNA's collection you've been able to handle or look at that means the most to you? And
1: um, I think for me just the photographs obviously I've spent a lot of time digitizing them, um, looking through them. And they're just it's just such an important collection. You know, they let us really see a different side to the the women that the golfers, um, you know, the LGU photographed all the championships, but you see them, you know, when they're relaxed, you see the camaraderie between um yes. the, you know, the women. And it's just, they're just they're great. And you can see, you know, um differences like there's a couple of photographs so you've got like Joyce Weathered and Cecil Leach who were sort of rival golfers in the interwar period English golfers and they had they were both very good golfers but had completely different styles so you had Joyce Weathered who was known to be very graceful And then Cecil Leach, who was known as sort of first of the Amazons, you know, really powerful swing. And there's photographs in the albums that show this perfectly. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, You mm -hmm. can really see that, you know, so it's, 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 they're great. You know, they really bring the women to life and, and, you know, fantastic.
0: Yeah. Joyce Weather has always been one of my heroes. What an incredible inspiration she is. And, you know, she also came from a family of golfers that's pretty well known. And I love her to death. Tell me, is there what do you find on the back of these photographs? Are the photographers credited? And often photographs like that have handwriting on the backs of them. Are you finding that much or are they all Um, in albums?
1: Yeah, well, most of them are in albums, Mm -hmm. but there are sometimes inscriptions um, at the bottom but, I wondered. Yeah, um, I, I wondered
0: in the early years if there was specific photographers that were uncommonly devoted to capturing this element of the game back in the late 19th century.
1: Yeah. No. So there are there are some names that come up. Um, it's not something that the museum um, has done a lot of research into, and mm-hmm. it's something actually that myself and my supervisor at the museum have discussed. Is you know who who photographed like who took these collections where uh, these photographs sorry were they they were obviously professional but were they employed was there a, a few different photographers that were employed obviously over the years you know that kind of toured or mm-hmm. did they hire local photographers you know to the area that the championships were in you know we don't we're, we don't know a lot about it, but it is something mm-hmm. that would be interesting to find out more about, definitely. And yeah. there is a woman as well. There's a definitely a, there was a woman photographer as well, and that her name came up. But when we tried to kind of dig into that, there wasn't a lot of couldn't find much on her, yeah. unfortunately. But it's something to to look into definitely.
0: I don't know if this is naive or not, but to me, what excites me about this whole area of research is the idea of empowerment and is that an oversimplification, or is that a typical white male approach to this? But that's what excites me about what you're researching: family golf and ladies golf. Is that does that strike you as naive and idiotic, or is that is there something to that?
1: No, no, I get that. no, I, I get that um, from the the get go, from the the sort of the 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 first ladies golf club in the world in St. Andrews, you know, 1867, you know, women were forging their way, creating their own club, albeit with the support of men. And then the first, you know, the ladies golf union and the first championship and the handicapping system. I mean, they knew what they were doing was important and pioneering and, you know, quite revolutionary really what they were doing, you know. Um, and yet, just the stories that I've collected from the women that play golf, It just, just the passion for the game, like I said, you know, like and as you've mentioned, family golf, just the connection there and then them passing it on to their families, you know, to their children and, you know, that women were introduced from such a young age, obviously their father's, were golfers themselves a lot of the time and felt that it was important, felt that it was a good sport for their daughters to play and got Mm -hmm. them involved. And and then they've carried it on into adult life. You know, I've interviewed women that started playing in the 40s and, you know, are, you know, still playing. It's just amazing. Um, And they've passed it on through the generations to their families as well. So it's, uh, yeah,
0: you're reminding me, I did this 21-day trip in Scotland in October, and we saw so many female golfers all over the country, uh, mostly club members and mm-hmm. uh, avid players, and it was really exciting to see. And these people were of every age, just like we see here in the U.S., but I think it might have been even more prominent in the U.K. than it is over here. Hmm. Now, if you could teleport yourself 50 years forward into the future, do you think things will be different 50 years from now, or will it look like it does today? Do you think for ladies' golf?
1: Mm, that's an interesting. Interesting <laughs> question. I think there will be changes. There's a lot going on just now. There's a lot of work within the industry to really promote women's golf. So I would like to think that there will be, you know, there will be changes in participation rates and things in the future. You know, there'll be more women playing golf and sort of more equal representation as well i know that that's one of the one of the main aims of the rna is you know to ensure that the women's game is thriving Mm -hmm. in 50 years time so you know it's very much on the agenda and you know you've got the women in golf charter introduced in 2018 by the rna and you know at the moment i think there's approximately 1200 signatories on that from our golfing organizations across the world so Would you be able
0: to, would you be able to distill what that says? What is the charter? What is, what is it aiming to do? Do you know?
1: Yeah. So it's really to improve sort of women's participation and representation um, in sport at all levels and looking at sort of the industry as well, sort of them. So you've got the RNA does a um, women in golf leadership program as well. Mm. So it's out with participation as well. It's looking at representation within the whole sort of golf industry and right. just families as well. Not only women, but families, getting more families into golf as well.
0: The uh, LPGA, many years ago here, uh, I've only read about this. I've never been able to find a copy of it, but they had a plan that they called Fans First and it was a strategic plan for the LPGA and I've always wanted to find it because I love the idea of putting that fan experience as the primary motivator for the entire LPGA. And I think they've been really successful making mm-hmm. their brand of events at least over here more about families and more about sharing and and not having this division between the haves and the have-nots as much. Mm. And I, anyway, it's, I read about it once and I've never been able to find it on the internet, but as somebody that loves strategic plans, I would love to see that plan because I wondered if I could transfer the concept of that fans first into the world that I work in, which is managing symphony orchestras and managing large arts organizations or museums. I just love the idea of turning the entire focus away from us as members and focusing on our customers are there any books you would recommend for listeners of this podcast that can help us know more about the evolution of the ladies game? Sure. Yeah. There's
1: lots of, lots of uh, books. So you've got, um, Louis Louie Mayer's, um, 100 years of women's mm-hmm. golf. It's great. Rosalind Cosey, her golfing ladies, five centuries of golf in Great Britain and Ireland. Shona McCainch, you've got the oldest ladies' golf club in the world, St Andrews Ladies' Golf Club, 1867 to 2017. Enid Wilson's A Gallery of Women Golfers. Rhonda Glenn, Illustrated History of Women's Golf. Um, Malcolm Crane, The Story of Ladies' Golf. Uh, And then there's earlier ones as well, if you can get your hands on them. Um, Mabel Stringer's Golf and Reminiscences, uh, 1924. Um, and Mae Heslitt's Ladies Golf as well, 1904. Yeah. Um, yeah, so there's lots out there.
0: May Heslitt comes up often in the 100 Years of Ladies Golf, the first book that you mentioned. hmm uh-huh. Excellent. Well, those are really good titles. You've made me excited to get my hands on some of those. <laughs> uh, how can listeners follow you or find you on social media if they would like to?
1: Yeah, so I'm on, I'm on um, Twitter, at laurenbt 93. Um, and I've also, I've got a research blog as well, mm. um, which is accessible. It's um, women in golf in Scotland, phdblog.wordpress.com.
0: Okay, great. I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well.
1: Yeah, thank
0: you. <laughs> and, and Lauren, is there anything we've missed that you want to share?
1: Not really. Just thank you so much for um, having me on, speaking to me today. It's been great.
0: I am so excited about this whole area of the development of history and the game. So thanks for doing what you're doing. It really excites me. Thank you. And uh, hopefully we'll get to meet sometime in the future.
1: Yeah, that'd be great.
0: Great. Thank you again. Thank you. Okay. See you later.
1: Bye.